sometimes. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. We tend to fall into these patterns of ungodly behavior very easily. We start grumbling against God because we don't have as much as our neighbor has. Or we find ourselves gossiping about someone. Or we find ourselves responding to someone in a way that's inappropriately angry with them. We fail again and again and again. Why do we fail? I actually think the answer is fairly simple. I think most of us here know what it is, but it's, a, it's worth reminding us of this. It's actually what the Bible calls our flesh. It's the old man or the old woman who still lives within us. And even though he's been conquered by the blood of Christ, he still clings to life, doing everything he can to fight against the changes that the Holy Spirit is bringing about in our lives. Now, our flesh is a powerful force that for many of us has had years ruling over our lives, and he's not going to go down without a fight. If you've read or seen The Lord of the Rings, it reminds me a little bit of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, because every time they think that they've actually finally gotten rid of Gollum, or they think that they've tamed Gollum and he's now nice Gollum, what does he do? He sneaks up on them when they're not paying attention and tries to throttle them. And our flesh is a bit like that. Every time we think that we've gotten rid of the old man or the old woman, every time we think that it's finally under control and we've beaten it, it comes back when we least expect it. So why is he? Why is the old man, the old woman, why are they still so powerful? After all, didn't God promise his prophet Ezekiel that God would actually remove from his people their hearts of stone and he would give them new hearts, hearts of flesh? And these hearts of flesh are supposed to have God's laws written on them. And we even have the Holy Spirit living within us. So what gives? Why is it so hard? I want to try and illustrate this with an analogy that you may have heard before, but I was reminded of last year when I managed to get to France. We're not going to work at all, guys. Just just turn it off, Jacob. Don't worry about it. Oh, no, we've gone way too far. Hey, look, maybe it is going to work. Put it back up. Well, hey, look at that technology. Sometimes it works. Isn't it wonderful? Where are we at? Here we go. Okay, D-Day beaches. So I was able to visit these five beaches, and we had, of course, the big um, remembrance of this event um, just a few weeks back. But I was able to visit these five beaches. If you're not familiar with these five beaches, these are the five beaches that the Allies invaded in northern France on D-Day. It's June 6, 1944. And it was the Allies' attempt to invade France almost exactly four years after Hitler's forces pushed them out and you might have seen the movie Dunkirk and know about that part of the story. This is really a make-or-break battle for the Allies, because if they can take these beaches, if they can establish a beachhead and withstand that initial German counterattack, the war in Europe is won. But if you know your history, you know there's actually going to be 11 months more fighting after this. So why do I say that the war is won? Because I think it's very clear that from the moment the Allies took these beaches... Hitler actually didn't stand a chance because the Allies are landing thousands of soldiers, tanks, planes, guns, supplies, ammunition. Every single hour, tons of supplies are coming ashore at these beaches. The German Air Force by this stage has been almost completely wiped out by the British and the American forces. Hitler can't possibly win. So the war's over. The outcome is certain. He's going to lose. But the Germans aren't going to go down without a fight. The war may have been lost, 
but there were still many battles that had to be fought over those next 11 months. And the battle for our soul looks a lot like that. When we become Christians and the Holy Spirit replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, upon which he writes his laws, when he takes up residence inside us, the war for our souls is over. He's won. But there are going to be many battles still to be fought before we can finally lay down our arms and rest. And how are we supposed to fight these battles? In our own strength, using our own resources? Well, most certainly not. Have a look again at the very start of verse 24. What does Jude say? He says, to him who is able. It's only the Lord who is able to equip us to fight these battles. We don't fight them on our own, in our own strength, using our own resources. We fight in the strength of the Lord. And the strength of the Lord cannot be equaled. We're fighting clad in his armor, wielding his sword and his shield. And because we're strengthened by him, we are certain to have victory. But why do we still struggle so so much day to day? If we're fighting this war in God's power using his arms and his armor, why do we still fail? I actually think it's because when we get into the heat of the battle and the battle is raging all around us, We kind of feel like we're about to become overcome by whatever difficulty we're in. And in that moment of feeling like we're about to be overcome, we actually turn away from relying on the promises of God and we turn to our own strength to try and fight these battles. And you look back on it later and you think, what was I thinking? Was I sitting there thinking, hmm, I know God's made these promises. I should probably give up on those and try to do this thing on my own. Am I the only one here who does that? I'm sure I'm not. This is why I think we find these battles so difficult. So what's the solution? How is it then that God can keep us from stumbling? Well, unfortunately, God doesn't just go and zap us with perfectionism. We don't become morally perfect the moment we become Christians, unfortunately. We're not going to be sinless entirely until we stand before God in eternity. Rather, what this looks like, to borrow a phrase from D. Edmund Herbert in his commentary on this book of Jude, he says this, he says, this phrase, to keep us from stumbling, depicts a life of moral and spiritual victory on the way to glory. A life of moral and spiritual victory on the way to glory. So while we will never reach that state of total sinlessness this side of the grave, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually can live a life that sees moral and spiritual victories in these battles in our lives. And what does such a life look like? What are the tools which the Lord has given us to allow us to fight these battles? What are the tools he uses to secure us in holiness? We do it by constantly feeding the new man and starving the old man. We do it by spending time in the word, spending time in prayer, in fellowship with other believers, just like we've been doing already this morning. These are the things that are nourishment for our souls. And just like if we skip meals, our bodies miss out on the nourishing things they need to keep our bodies healthy. So when we miss these things, our souls become malnourished and we miss out on the things that our souls need to fight these battles. These are seeds that we sow to the Spirit in order to reap a harvest of righteousness. And if we aren't constantly sowing these seeds, then there will be no resources for us to draw from when the battles come. 
But it's not enough just to sow those seeds. We also have to starve the old man. The more we starve him, the weaker he grows. The weaker he grows, the less of a hold he has on us. So we have to deny him the things that he craves the most, or she craves the most, as your case may be. The Apostle John lets us know um, the best way to do this in 1 John chapter 2, where he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we need to remove from our lives the things of the world. That's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, which means the pride that we take in our possessions. Now, this might mean that you have to give up your very favorite TV show because the content of that TV show might be feeding the lusts of your eyes or the lusts of your flesh. It might mean you have to give up your favorite album, maybe that one you've been listening to for the last 20 years, if the content of that album is feeding these lusts. It might mean you have to cut up your credit card and be content with living with less than your neighbours, or a phone that's more than 12 months old. It's going to depend on your circumstance. But I pray that as I was giving you those few examples, the Holy Spirit was actually bringing to your mind something that is relevant to you where you're at right now. And if he was, don't squash those thoughts. Listen to that voice of the Holy Spirit at work in your conscience and obey him. Paul actually boils all this down quite nicely for us in Romans 13, verse 14, where he says, we've lost one there, that's all right, where he simply says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's his simple way of saying it, put on Jesus and don't make provision for the flesh. And some of us here today, and I include myself in this category, we sometimes feel that despite doing all the best that we can to actually starve the old man, to put on Christ and not make provision for the flesh, despite sowing as best we can to the Spirit, sometimes feels like we're not making progress. Sometimes it feels like we're just hitting a brick wall. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they still seem to have a hold on us. And sometimes it can get very discouraging. It can feel like we will never actually be free of these things. But it's at times like this when I'm tempted to doubt what I'm reading here in Jude, that God really can keep me from stumbling, that I turn to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians and I take a lot of comfort in them. This passage comes immediately after one of Paul's famous vice lists. You know, there's big lists he goes in where he lists all the things that characterize the lives of the unrighteous people. And then he has this to say. This is in chapter 6. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I don't know what versions you all are reading, but I usually read the CSB, and the CSB translates the first part of verse 11 this way, and some of you used to be like this. I like the way that's phrased. And when I'm reminded of this statement, I look back at my life and I can see areas where the Holy Spirit has granted me victory over various sins. I can see what I used to be like and how I am no longer like that. And I really hope you can if you look back at your life too. 
You may have seen this quote from John Newton, the famous slave trader turned Christian, but it's a wonderful expression of this idea. He says this, I'm not the man I ought to be. I'm not the man I wish to be. And I'm not the man I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I'm not the man I used to be. I love that. It's so encouraging. So if you too can look back at your life and see that you are not what you used to be, then you are living proof of the promise made here in Jude that God can indeed keep you from stumbling. And this brings us to the other side of what Jude means when he says God can keep us from stumbling, that he's able to keep us from stumbling so badly that we fall away from Christ altogether. So not only will God enable and empower us to have victory in the individual battles of sin in our life, he will ultimately ensure that we actually make it through to the end of the war. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the greatest and most comforting truths of the Christian religion, that despite our failings and despite our sin, God will never let us go. Just very quickly, go back to verse 1 in Jude. should be at the top of your page there because probably most of your Bibles only takes up one page. It's such a small book. And we're going to see this idea in slightly different words. Jude says this in verse 1, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Kept for Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thought? We're being kept from falling away for Jesus. Why? Because we're awesome. We've got something to offer Jesus, something that he needs. Of course not. We're being kept for Christ because we are the reward for which he died. It was the will of the Father from eternity past to choose a group of people that he would present to his son as a gift, a people who are redeemed and purified by Christ's work on the cross, a people who by the power of God alone would be kept from stumbling, kept from falling away from Christ so that he might receive the fullness of the reward for which he died. We cannot secure ourselves in holiness, but he can. Listen to these words from Jesus in John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Isn't that fabulous? Jesus will never lose us. Jesus will never throw us away. He will never discard us. And he will certainly raise us up on the last day. And that truth should fill you with peace and joy and should make your heart grow in worship of our great God. He is able to keep us in love and in mercy all of our days. So we need to stop relying on our own feeble attempts at being holy and rest solely on him who is able to keep us from stumbling. I saw an example of this at my cousin's place on, on Christmas this year just gone. Um, she has a, a two-year-old son and she's leading her son down the back steps. It's about 10 steps down the back of their old Queenslander um, down to where we're having a barbie. And she's holding his hand as he walks sort of unsteadily you know, down the steps in the way that toddlers do. And it provides us with a good, not perfect, but it's a, it's, it's a good illustration of what we're seeing here. Because as much as her son wanted to tackle those stairs on his own, and he did, she knew that he actually isn't able. She knew that if she let him go, he would stumble and he would fall. 
He made it safely to the bottom of those stairs at the back of the house, not because he was able, but because she was able, because she held him fast as he was going down those stairs. And Christ is kind enough to do the same thing for us. Not only is he able to keep us from stumbling and falling away, he is also able to ensure that once he has led us through to the end of this earthly journey, he can present us before the Father in perfect holiness because only he is able to perfect us in that holiness. Look at the end of verse 24. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So not only is God the one who is able to keep us from stumbling, he is the one who is able to ultimately perfect us in holiness, to make us blameless for all of eternity. Do you look forward to that day, church? Do you look forward to the day when this struggle against the flesh, when this war between you, between the new man and the old man, the new woman and the new, uh, the old woman and the new woman, is finally over? This constant struggle between our flesh and the Spirit of God is finally done, and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is complete. Can you imagine what that would be like? Some of you may have seen these pictures. These are pretty famous pictures from VE Day, which is Victory in Europe Day. That's the day the war ended in Europe. You have a look at the celebration going on here, the jubilation, people flocking to the streets of London in joy, people who no longer have to watch the skies for enemy bombers or listen for the piercing call of an air raid siren and have to take shelter. They have peace at last. And yet, the joy that you can see on their faces here is actually going to be pretty short-lived. Because pretty soon the realization is going to set in that, okay, maybe the war with Germany is over, but guess what? war with Japan isn't. And even when the war with Japan is still over, we're going to have the Korean War, we're going to have the Vietnam War, we're going to have Iraq, Afghanistan. The list of conflicts is pretty much endless. The peace we experience here on earth is always temporary. Every ceasefire that we can arrange never lasts forever. But brothers and sisters, think about this in your own life. Just, just pause for a moment and I want you to think about a time when you were most at peace, when you were most happy. Hopefully that's not going to be tri too tricky to do. Maybe, some of the younger ones here, it was Christmas not long ago and you were unwrapping that first of many presents. Maybe it was your wedding day and you're feeling the joy of being united to the one that you love most. Maybe it was the joy you experienced the day your child was born and you held her in your arms for the first time. Maybe it was that day that you accepted Christ and you finally knew peace with God. These are all great things and we can ride the highs of these things for a very long time, but eventually the shine of them is going to wear off. Those new toys we got at Christmas are going to break. We'll have our first fight with our new spouse. Our kids will do or say something that wounds us. Or we'll come to realize that this Christian life is actually a lot more difficult than I thought it might have been. And we can be tempted to turn back. But when we make it to heaven, we will have a joy that is forever. That continues for time without end as we stand in the presence of God, perfected, fully sanctified, fully purged of all the effects of sin in our lives, then we will truly be blameless. We will truly be without blemish and we will know lasting peace. 
But how is it possible for us, for fallen, stained, sinful wretches like me and like you, to be perfected, to be fully cleansed of our sins? Well, it's what we call the great exchange. It's the exchange of our sin and guilt to Christ and his righteousness exchanged to us. We see this most clearly expressed in a verse that you might be familiar with. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We also see this in a great verse in Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, how? By nailing it to the cross. It's by Christ's actions at the cross that our debts are fully paid. There's nothing left that we need to do to atone for our sins. We can stand before God in heaven without blemish because Christ's work is complete. Our debts have been wiped clean. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, the very Lamb of God who himself was without spot and blemish. And we are clothed in his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, try to imagine what this is actually going to be like, if you can, to be completely free from the shame and the stain of your sin. I don't know if I can properly imagine that because it seems like our sinfulness is such a, a central part of being human and living out this human life. I don't really know what it would be like to do without it, to have that finally taken away from me. But it, that wasn't always part of our human experience. If you think about Adam and Eve back in the garden, before sin entered into their lives and destroyed what they had, they were naked, they were unashamed, both unashamed to be seen by each other, unashamed to be seen by God. They're walking freely in his company, chatting with him in the cool of the evening each day, completely at peace, being so intimately present with God. But then it all changed. When sin entered into their lives and into that relationship and broke it, how did it affect them? Well, the first thing they noticed was their shame, both before each other in their nakedness, but ultimately before God. And they sought to hide themselves from him. And ever since that day, we've all felt fear at God's presence. But what Jude is teaching us here in verse 24 is that there will come a day when we will be perfected in holiness. where We will no longer feel the weight of our sin. We will be able to once again enjoy being in God's presence. I think we catch glimpses of this in our earthly relationships. When we've wronged another person, and then we've experienced their forgiveness and the restoration of that relationship, I think that gives us a glimpse of what this might be like. I'm sure you can remember this as well, but I can certainly remember times as a kid being caught out by my parents doing the wrong thing and kind of feeling that dread of what's to come. Like not just the discipline, but the disappointment that mum and dad felt because of how I'd let them down, how that action of disobedience had impacted our relationship. And I'm sure we've all had similar experiences. But I hope that you can also remember a time when you, can f when you, felt, how it, um, when you felt what it was like when everything was done and dusted, when forgiveness had been offered and forgiveness had been accepted and that relationship was restored. When you could once again feel the, 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 the restored relationship with your spouse or with your kids or with whoever it was that you had wronged. 
we get a little bit of a taste of what this might finally be like in heaven when our relationship with our Heavenly Father is perfected in a way that we can't really experience here on earth. Listen to these great words from Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. But It gets even better. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. This is not just a return to Eden, to how things were, as great as that might be. This is actually something new. This is something better. This is a world in which sin can never enter in and break our relationship with God. This is a world where guilt and shame and disgrace will never be known. There won't even be that possibility. This is truly why Jude can say at the end of verse 24 that we'll be able to stand in God's glory with great joy. You know, there's actually no one in the Bible after Adam and Eve who was able to stand in God's glory with great joy. Not even Moses, who if you remember his story, he spent so much time with God on Mount Sinai being in God's glory that his face shone and they had to put a bag over his head just so you could have a conversation with him. But you remember, Moses actually asked God in Exodus 33, he said, God, show me your face. Do you remember God's response? God said, humans cannot see my face and live. Don't think that was the response Moses was looking for. What about Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6, where in a vision of heaven, he finds himself before God's throne. What does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But Jude is showing us here in verse 24 that we will actually experience something completely different to Moses, to Isaiah, when we stand before the throne of God in heaven. We sang these words just a few minutes ago, and whether this is a song that you remember as a great old hymn, or whether it's a song that you only saw for the first time today, think about these words. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Such a thing is unimaginable for people who have properly understood the guilt that they carry. But for those of us who have trusted in the finished work of Christ, it is imaginable. And more than that, we will actually experience the reality of this one day. Brothers and sisters, is this theology moving you towards doxology? Is hearing about these great and wonderful truths leading you into worship of God? Are these truths causing your spirit to rise in worship of our great God and King for the things that he has done for us? I hope that they are. But if you're here today and you haven't accepted Jesus' offer to be cleansed of your sin, to have your relationship with God restored to where it should be, my prayer is that hearing about these great and wonderful truths would awaken in you a deep desire to come to know this God. He is the only God and Savior who can completely cleanse you from the stain and the shames of your sin.
who can transform you from one who rightly fears this holy judge of the universe, just as Adam and Eve came to, to someone who loves him and looks forward to being in his presence. If that's you, please don't just walk away today. Come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Rob, talk to Pastor Dan. We would delight to talk to you more about these things. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how deeply you feel the weight of those actions. You come to God because only He is able to cleanse you. Only He is able to secure you in holiness. Only He is able to perfect you in holiness. And for those of us that have experienced what God has done, who can look past the uncertainties of this year to the sure and certain promises of Christ, there's really one response that makes sense. And that is that we should be worshipping Him. If we truly believe that God will keep us from stumbling, that He will never let us go, that He will give us victory in our fight against sin, if we truly believe that He can cleanse us perfectly from the stains of our sin and cause us to be in God's presence with great joy, what other response can there be but worship? And I can think of no better way to end a sermon like this than with the words of worship that our Lord's brother wrote for us here in the book of Jude in praise of God. So I want to finish by simply reading verse 25. Have a look at it in your Bibles there. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. And so... The sermon has been heard, but it has not yet been done. We cannot simply be hearers of God's word. We have to be doers of God's word. So I'm going to give you all homework. I can't help myself. I'm a school teacher. I have to give out homework, all right? We've heard today about great and amazing things that God's done for us, things that should lead us into worship of him. But we've also heard about our need to fight against our sin, to starve our old man or our old woman, to resist the lures of the world. So I'm going to ask you to do two things every day this week to try and cement what we've been talking about today. They're both very simple. First thing I'm going to ask you to do is when you start your day. I want you to read these two verses, Jude's Doxology, again as you start your day. And I want you to pick just one of the many things that he lists in there that God has done for us. And I want you to spend just a moment giving thanks and praise to God for that particular thing. Maybe pick a different one every day and work through the whole thing over the course of the week. But just spend that moment at the start of your day praising God for who he is and for what he's done. But the second thing I want to ask you to do is something to do at the end of your day. I want you to look back at your day and ask yourself, where today did I allow the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes or the pride of life to rear its head? And I want you to take that thing before the Lord in a prayer of repentance and to renew your commitment before him to, with his strength, fight against that particular sin, to put it to death. I can guarantee you, brothers and sisters, if you can get into the habit of hedging your day with praise and with repentance, you will see growth in your life as a Christian. Join with me in prayer as we finish. Father, we are in awe of what you've done for us and the things that are recorded here in your word. We look back at the cross at your plan of salvation and I can't help but worship you for this amazing gift. 
You did for me what I had no hope of doing for myself, and you gave it to me simply as a gift. Lord, I thank you that through your strength and power, you can grant us victory over the sin that remains in our life, that you can and you will keep us from falling away, and that there will come a day when we will finally be free of the effects of our sin and we'll be able to stand with great joy in your presence, perfected, without spot, without blemish, for all time. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to invite Pastor Rob to come now and lead us around the Lord's table in communion. Thanks, Dave. Very challenging, very good. Yeah. Um, Yesterday, a handful of us from this church went down to Sydney and... We had a wonderful time. You can ask those who went. Very encouraging time thinking about um, the subject of assurance, assurance of our salvation. It was fantastic. And there was lots of verses from the Bible that we looked at, but the particular speaker was referencing back to this time in history this group of people called the Puritans. And phenomenal guys and gals, phenomenal time of uh, really solid, clear thinking about God and, and holiness. And he kept referencing and quoting the Puritans. And it was very encouraging. It's interesting, one day the Puritans, so a bunch of pastors and theologians, actually got together and drafted out a document. They met in Westminster Abbey and it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they wrote a lot of different sort of uh, on subjects to help the church for us to think rightly about God and um, heartily commit, commit that to you, the Westminster Confession of Faith. But here's what they said when it comes to the Lord's table or as we call it, communion. Um, they said this here, if you look here, here on the PowerPoint, um, says in 29.1, our Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper. It is to be observed in his church until the end of the age for the perpetual, that means ongoing, perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death for the sealing of all the benefits of that death unto true believers for their spiritual nourishment and growth in him for their increased commitment to perform all the duties which they own to him and for a bond and pledge of their fellowship with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. A lot of words there. And if you just look at it, though, they're, they're harking back there. They're pulling back to the night when Jesus was betrayed. We often read Luke 24 uh, and to think about well, why did Jesus do this? He's remembering, it's pointing forward ultimately, remembering the Passover when he, Jesus initially did it, and it was pointing forward to the true and greater Passover. But I love the, the words here though. It's we're called to do this, right? It is to be observed in his church until the end of the age. Well, obviously all the dudes that wrote this are like long dead, but this is perpetual. This is ongoing. This is why we, when we gather, we are celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But as we partake of the bread and the juice, we are actually publicly identifying together as a church to say this is a declaration of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So if you are in Christ, if you have come to the place where you say, yeah, you know what? I'm a Christian. I identify with Jesus. 
The faith is real for me. When Dave was just talking about this idea of praising God for our salvation, I can identify with that. There's actually marks in my life. People can look at my life and see a difference and a change. I'm a Christian. Then this time is for you. This time is for us as a church to celebrate that. If you're going, yeah, not so much. Maybe it's my parents' faith. Um, Maybe it's not so sure. I'm kind of you know, I don't know if I've ever really closed with Christ. I don't know if I've actually been born again. I don't, in fact, I'm not really sure I believe this stuff quite yet. Again, we think it's wonderful you're here, and don't leave without talking to someone next to you about what it means to become a Christian, become born again, but this time is not for you. This is time for you to look on and let that pass. So I'd ask now that the helpers come forward, and we're actually going to distribute the elements together. Um, And when you do get the bread or the cracker and the juice. Um, hold on to that and we'll take it together as a church. And we'll just leave the PowerPoint up there. If you want to sort of look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, very wordy, but think about uh, the truths that are there. Think about what the Lord has done on your behalf. So let's take this time now. I read a passage here from 1 Corinthians. Paul writes and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat together. Paul goes on to write and he says, In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take and drink. And then he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's uh, finish our time now in singing together, and then I have one more important announcement for you.